The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Anne Beclay. She attended the University of California in Santa Cruz, where she earned bachelor's degrees in both biology and natural history. She also holds a master's degree in landscape architecture from the University of California, Berkeley. She has over two decades of professional experience spanning field biology, watershed restoration, environmental planning, and public health. And with her husband, geologist David Montgomery, she authored The Hidden Half of Nature, which explores how microbial life underpins the health of soil and humans. And she speaks nationwide on this topic and recently gave a fascinating presentation at the Real Organic Symposium at Dartmouth College last spring in which she discussed these connections. And I am delighted to talk with you. Welcome, Anne. Yeah, thank you, Melinda. Well, there are so many things that you mentioned during this presentation at Dartmouth. I think what I want to start with, though, is just getting an idea of how was it that you ended up in biology? What was it that made you fall in love with that topic? Well, I think that goes back a long ways in my life. And I don't exactly know how I gravitated toward it, except that when I was a little kid, I grew up in Colorado, not like up in the mountains, but in this sort of average suburb south of Denver, and we had a a fairly large yard, and I just, when I was a little girl, I just used to wander around in the yard. To me, it was a big, big place, and, you know, whenever you live in a snowy, cold climate and then spring hits, Mm. you, especially as a child, I mean, you can hardly believe there's anything green and non-frozen out there, and I think because plants don't get up and run away from you, they sort of became the object and fascination of my study. And throughout my life as a young adult, I spent a lot of time outside noticing things. I'm kind of a noticer, Melinda. It's both a curse and a blessing because sometimes, you know, I'm noticing too many things. But it's really useful when you see what appear to be scattered dots on a problem and then you start to see connections and then you can put a story together. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I have often said that the best farmers out there are keen observers, and I think the best citizens are also keen observers. So it is so critical that we pay close attention to what is going on in our environment, and I fear that with our technology, we are so much inside and away from the living world that I fear that maybe we're missing some of the key lessons that we should be learning, especially with the threat of climate change. So I'm really glad to know that we share that perspective. One of the things that you brought up at Dartmouth was Eve Balfour's book, The Living Soil, and you drew connections to her observations as well, which was that there's this connection between human health and soil vitality. How do you describe that to audiences in more detail? Like, what do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, I think we all understand that Food grows in soil. Our plant foods grow in soil and our animal foods are eating these plant foods. And 
We, of course, are one among many animals eating these crops. And when you begin to start at the basic question of considering a plant's green body and how the botanical world has long, long taken care of itself, way before gardeners and farmers were around, plants didn't need any of these things that we think we're helping them with. And where that leads you really quickly in the world of plant science is into how plants have this ability through all of this energy that they're capturing through photosynthesis, they are manufacturing a vast array of compounds and they put collections of these compounds together, maybe a little bit like these fancy bartenders today are making all these craft cocktails. A plant has it way over on all of those kind of bartenders with what it can put together. And what it does with these botanical cocktails, so to speak, is it releases them through their roots out into the soil. And it's not a trivial matter. We know that somewhere around 40% of the energy that a plant makes through photosynthesis, it uses to manufacture these compounds and then push them out into the soil through their roots. And you think, gosh, that's weird. Why are plants doing that? It does seem kind of weird because it's a huge energy investment. And then you begin looking into the communities of microorganisms that congregate in this very narrow zone around roots. And so this is the root microbiome. It is supposed to be there in many ways, although it's not actually a part of the plant body. It sort of is a part of the plant body if you look at it from a functional and relationship perspective. So these exudates, these microorganisms stuck down there in the soil, they can't really move anywhere. They're consuming all of these exudates because it's their diet. It's basically what they're eating morning, noon, and night are these plant exudates. And we know that this relationship between a plant and its root microbiome is one of the oldest symbiotic relationships on our planet. And what the microbes do in return is, just like any organism, they're making metabolites from what they consume. And these metabolites are really, really important for the plant because the plant will take up these metabolites that their root microbiome has produced. And it's things like plant growth promoting hormones. And so this is really important. If a plant is going to grow, it needs the right kind of hormones. It also, the root microbiome has a big role to play in stimulating the plant immune system. And so when you begin to poke around in the plant science on this, you see just how important the root microbiome is for the health and well-being of plants in a garden. Of course, in an agricultural context, we're interested in this because it's the health and well-being of our crops, which in turn relates to, well, if plants are really healthy and they're resilient and they're able to push back on pests and pathogens, what it means is that we could probably cut back on the amount of agrochemicals and pesticides and that kind of thing that we're using in agriculture. Mm -hmm. I want you to draw a picture for our listeners. You mentioned green body of a plant. This is the part that we see that is above ground, right? Right. Okay. And then we've got what we can't see, the magic that happens underneath the ground. 
And we've got this extensive root system, if indeed the soil is good and the plant is healthy. And just so that I understand, that area around the root system is what you're referring to as the rhizosphere. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the other term for it is rhizosphere. Okay. And then the root exudates. When you showed a picture of this at your talk at Dartmouth, it was almost like the curtains pulled open. So the plant through photosynthesis is producing compounds and they are released through the root system. And these are the root exudates and that these exudates become the meals for the microbes that live in the soil in the rhizosphere. Am I understanding this? Yes, that's absolutely right. And I do call it meals for microbes. Okay. That's what those exudates are. Okay, great. So you had three images during your talk at Dartmouth. One was of the root system of a plant that had received, we could call them fertilizer, for example, the Mm -hmm. typical NPK. Right. We think we're doing our plants well, we apply the fertilizer. And then you had a plant that was, if I remember correctly, it was nourished through compost, Mm -hmm. through a more organic system. Mm -hmm. And then you had, I believe, a control plant. Yeah, nothing had been done to that third plant. What I recall is that the plant that had received the nourishment through compost as opposed to the plant that had either been neglected or the plant that had been given the commercial fertilizer, the plant that received the compost was the one that had the healthiest root system. What was going on there? Yeah. What we know about that particular study had used composted manure. That was the source of the organic matter used there. And the way a plant responds to a diversity of slow-acting sources of nutrients, which is basically what different forms of organic matter are, versus conventional fertilizer, which is these pure nutrients at very high dosages. A plant can use either one, and above ground, you will often get similar results, except that usually on a conventional fertilizer diet for a plant, You're getting really rapid growth. It's putting biomass on like crazy. A plant above ground on the organic nutrients, it'll still grow, not quite as fast, not quite as much biomass. But what's happening underground is that because with a conventional fertilizer, that plant is taking those nutrients and it's putting it into above ground growth, which is what the plant intends to do with any nutrient. And because it's got all of its nutritional needs met that way, these roots have little need to be putting out exudates because it's got this alternate source of nutrition, which is the NPK. And in any biological system where you can economize on expending energy, you will. So because this plant has got fertilizers galore from that farmer, no need to grow this extensive root system, be putting out exudates and be forming all of these relationships with the root microbiome. Now, the problem is that that plant on a conventional fertilizer, there's all kinds of other things that the root microbiome provides to plants. It's not just some of the most basic nutrients, but it's also these metabolites that I talked about. So when that picture of the plant on the composted manure treatment, it's feeding a whole web of life in the soil. 
And that includes, you know, forms of life, much larger, you know, the typical things we see, a worm, a beetle, and so on. But what this whole web of life in the soils ultimately gets to is that every time one life form eats something, it's excreting a metabolite of some sort, which to another organism is a meal. It's some kind of nutrient. And so there's this endless and endlessly diverse source of feedstocks for all of this soil life. And each organism is putting out a different kind of metabolite. And when it gets right down to the microbial level, these metabolites are being taken in by the plant. And it is providing the plant with not just things that we think of like nutrition. It's providing the plant with information and with intelligence as well. Things like, hey, there's a phosphorus source over here, and you could grow your roots more over here and tap into that phosphorus source. It can also include intelligence like there is the approach of a pathogen, and so it's time to gen up defensive compounds throughout the plant's green body in order to push back on this pest or pathogen. So I often liken it in my talks to we think about the brain of any organism is where there's a lot of processing going on, and it's sort of the headquarters for how things are running. And definitely the plant brain is not above ground, it is below ground. And it is this, think about all the neural networking that goes on between our brain and the rest of our body. And that is the analogous situation is that the root microbiome and the root system together are the brain of the plant. Mm. And the botanical world is smart in this way. It's only got its plant genome to rely on but if it can extend its its intelligence, so to speak, and its relationship and the way in which it gets the things it needs to the genomes of trillions of organisms in the soil, it's almost like there's no limit on what a plant is going to be able to do in terms of its growth potential, in terms of beating back on pests and pathogens, even in terms of we know from recent work in plant science Plants are communicating between themselves, and those plants that are doing well, doing buff, everything's going great, probably has some excess nutrients, they will share those excess nutrients and various metabolites with other nearby plants that may be struggling. We know this happens in forests. This is how trees allocate and share resources. It's sort of a one-for-all and all-for-one picture there. So it really does matter what it is we're feeding our plants because we want to think about nutrients, but we also want to think about these other things that occur between a plant and its microbiome. And the the microbiome is just absolutely essential for a plant's health and well-being. Yeah, it's fascinating and it's magical. And it just helps us appreciate what's going on underground a little bit more. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Anne Bicklay. She describes herself as a free-range biologist with a bad case of plant lust. She is perfect when it comes to helping us understand the connections between soil health, plant health, and human health. And that is exactly where I want to go right now because the other thing that you mentioned during your presentation was that you were drawing comparisons between plant root systems and our gut. And as you were describing the brain of the plant being underground, it's sort of like we have this human body standing on the earth and we're just going to flip us 
upside down. And it's the same thing when we're talking about the plant root systems and their relationship with microbes and the, the exudates that they're putting out into the soil. It's very similar with regard to the gut microbiome that has been really taking off in terms of how we're understanding human health and the immune system being, I believe it's 70% of the human immune system is located in our guts. And you draw these comparisons. So let me just open the floor to you and talk about how you see those connections. Yeah, it's been really stunning what we've been learning and what scientists have been publishing about the human microbiome, because it is in many ways analogous to a plant's root microbiome. And our root system, if you will, equivalent of a rhizosphere, is the very bottom part of our digestive tract. I sometimes get annoyed when I see these pictures of the human digestive tract, and everyone's putting all of the emphasis on the microbiome. There's these, you know, uh, infographics and stuff with all of the microbiome being in the stomach, but that's not accurate. That's just their first stop. They keep going on and on and on, and they, not the microbes per se, what I was meaning is the the way that food travels through our digestive tract, it's really important to understand that we only have certain enzymes and gastric juices and things like that to break down. We do pretty well on our own with what our own genome can code in terms of proteins and fats and simple carbohydrates. But when it comes to the complex carbohydrates, so this is what fiber is, this is all this you know, chatter about a whole foods in our diet, especially whole plant foods. We do not possess all the enzymes needed to break down these complex carbohydrates, but certain members of our microbiome, those that dwell in the colon or the large intestine, they do. In fact, there's a particular bacterium, it really has a tongue twister of a name. It's, it's called Bacteroides Theta Iota Omicron. People just shorten that to B Theta. And what we know about B Theta is it codes for some, the estimate is somewhere around 260 different enzymes that are breaking down all of the different complex carbohydrates from what makes up a steel cut oat to a piece of spinach to the peel of an apple. When you think about it, there really are a lot of different kinds of carbohydrates and plant foods. And so long, long ago in human evolution, we farmed out the job of breaking all of this stuff down to our microbiome. And so I often say everybody has heard of that saying, you are what you eat. But really, Melinda, we are what our microbiome is eating. Because just like in the root microbiome, the communities of microbes that live down in the colon, they're consuming all of this whole plant food and fibers that land in our colon. Think of it like there's tranquil grazing pastures down there, and they're they're breaking down all of this stuff, and they're producing metabolites. And what we know about the human microbiome is that for the most part, the metabolites that come out of whole plant foods are really beneficial for us. One example is a short-chain fatty acid. It's about a four-carbon chain called butyrate or sometimes called butyric acid. And it's a really great energy source for our colon cells. And so this is very unusual because most of the nutrients that nourish most of the cells and tissues in our body, they're carried there in our blood. But right there in our colon, we've got communities of microbes manufacturing 
fuel source, basically, for our colon cells. I mean, it doesn't get more perfect than that. You're getting energy right where these cells need it. And our colons are a hard-working place. It's on 24-7. And so butyrate, we also know that it communicates with our immune system. There's particular kinds of cells that are constantly exploring what is inside of our digestive tract. And butyrate down in the colon is a compound that our immune cells, when they detect it, it influences our immune response. In in general, butyrate helps keep inflammation as a normal process as opposed to a chronic, low-level problem kind of a process. So putting that picture together then, we know when our microbiome is eating, consuming a lot of fiber, uh, carbohydrates that are in whole plant foods, it's producing a compound that is intelligence for our immune system to help the immune cells communicate with one another to keep inflammation on a nice, even keel for when we're not dealing with some kind of a, you know, an acute problem, a cold virus, a cancer cell, or what have you. So it's this really well-integrated system wherein there's things in our diet that feed the microbiome. The microbiome produces things that are then very beneficial for certain of our systems. And another thing that is a really interesting area in microbiome research is that neurotransmitters, you know, so for a long time people thought, oh, things like serotonin, you know, this is the neurotransmitter that uh, helps us either feel happy or sometimes it's related to sadness. And people thought for a long time, oh, that's only produced up in the brain, of course, because that's where mood is made, is up in the brain. But then through research on the human microbiome, we know that certain types of communities of bacteria, specific even specific species, are interacting with both immune cells and endocrine cells that associate with the digestive tract in ways that serotonin is probably even more is produced in the gut, and then it travels to the brain. And so this is really quite interesting, right? Because if our brain power is partly in our mood and how we feel and all these kinds of things are partly rooted in our diet, it stands to reason then that we should really be paying attention to diet for resolving mental health issues, for all kinds of things, really. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting as we're talking about these high fiber foods, I'm thinking about my own education as a dietitian and of course, we always promoted high-fiber diets because they help with elimination. Oh, right. But right. as you have <laughs> rightfully brought forth in many of your presentations, the large intestine, the colon, the rectum, we're not talking so much about the waste area of the body. We're talking about an onboard pharmacy. That's exactly what I call it. I say this is our onboard medicine chest, and we want medicines to be filling up that medicine chest. We don't want a bunch of bad things in that medicine chest. Right. Yeah. And when we think about the chronic diseases that are plaguing our society, and you're well aware of this, you brought this out at at Dartmouth, the idea that, well, if you look at cancer and heart disease, those are the two main killers in many of the industrial countries. And those diseases go along with a westernized diet. You can start to understand, oh, there's this gut connection. That's why this is going on. 
without those high fiber plant foods, we really don't have the the medicines available to keep inflammation down and to keep our body healthy, mental and physical health we're talking about here, all connected to the gut. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, you showed how we can not only change the health of our own garden soil and the quality of our plants, but you also look at the impact on climate. And I loved something you brought forth, which was we talk about farming, these tracts of land that are producing too often commodity crops rather than foods that really promote health. But I like that you looked at everyone's opportunity to have a postage stamp size garden and an opportunity to not only nourish ourselves, but also to help with climate change. I want to give you an opportunity to speak to that. Yeah. If you think about it, Melinda, there are farmers and gardeners all over the world. And in urban areas, obviously a lot more gardeners. And if you were to put all of the gardeners in the United States together and add up the amount of acreage that we are affecting with our gardening practices and think about the opportunity to be doing practices that are essentially keeping carbon in the soil rather than allowing it to escape and head up to the atmosphere and cause problems up there. I think that gardening is an underappreciated source for helping out on climate change. Of course, we obviously need to reduce emissions from cars and things like that. But as soon as somebody connects how their own behavior, their own activity is a part of something larger, it all of a sudden can take on more importance. And I know that even in our own garden, I mean, which is small by Seattle standards, it's maybe around 2,000, 2,500 square feet, and it's a mix of ornamentals, and we've got a little food patch and all of that. But over the years that I've been working in the garden, we actually measured the carbon several years ago and found out that compared to what we started with, we had put... We started with somewhere around 1% or 2% organic matter in the soil, and we're now at about 7% in the beds, and we're up to as much as 14% in our vegetable bed. And so if everybody were able to tweak their practices a bit so that basically you're really minimizing how much digging around you're doing, because that brings all this organic matter to the surface, and it oxidizes, and there it goes up into the atmosphere. But if you essentially ditch the shovel, keep the soil covered, and grow diversity. So in other words, you want living plants covering your soil during your growing season for sure. And people in urban areas sometimes get a little too tidy with things, and especially anywhere that has a lot of trees. You know, there go the leaves falling, and then people get really upset, and they're putting them out in the garbage, and I'm just like, oh, God, what are you doing? No, 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 no. The leaves have just slightly fallen in the wrong place. Leave the leaves where they've fallen when they're all down. Then you can rearrange them. You can put them in containers. You can put them onto beds. They're one of the finest sources of organic matter, and we should certainly not be sending them off to the landfill. They are part of this grand food web in the soil that is necessary for healthy functioning soil microbiome and that really important part of the soil microbiome right around the roots of a plant. So this is what I think more gardeners should be thinking about along those lines. I call it 
regenerative gardening. We have to end our conversation, but I want to thank you so much. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Anne Beclay. You can find out more about her work at www.digtogrow.com. Thank you, Anne. All right, Melinda. Thank you. 